Welcome to Modern Sign Books on Blog Talk Radio. If you're interested in what makes your favorite authors and collectors tick, then you'll love hearing what they have to say in our live interviews. Learn how they got started writing, the books and authors that inspired them, what they have in their personal collections, and much more. Meet today's hottest authors as they discuss their life and writing in revealing conversations with our book specialist, Roger Nichols. And find us at modernsignbooks.blogspot.com. Now sit back and enjoy a few minutes with Modern Sign Books. Here's Roger. Welcome to Blog Talk Radio. I'm your host, Roger Nichols. We don't often bandy the word polymath around. Ordinarily, it's pretty difficult to work into a conversation, but it certainly applies to our guest today. You know William Bernard as a successful attorney who became an even more successful author thanks to his long series about idealistic lawyer Ben Kincaid, and that he won a number of prestigious awards that he gives back to the uh, community by teaching writing workshops and even publishing books. But you may not have known that he's also a pianist and composer who's produced two CDs, constructed crossword puzzle for the New York Times, dug for dinosaurs, trekked through the Himalayas, and been a champion on Jeopardy. No wonder Oklahoma State University named him Oklahoma's Renaissance Man. Welcome to our show. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Right. In a video on your website, uh, WilliamBernhard.com, you see that writing legal briefs is closer to writing a novel than most people might think that law revolves around words. I find that a fascinating example of your writing in, in itself. How has that worked out for you? How has that transition been made? Well, I haven't practiced law in a long time, but... I don't know what I was thinking. I was probably thinking that both are a heck of a lot of work, <laughs> trying a case and writing a book, uh, enormously time-consuming. Uh, but when you're putting on a trial, at least you're most successful when you are telling a story. And the story has to make sense to the judge or jury. It's got to have a beginning, middle, and end. And uh, it really is a narrative form. Some other things occurred to me. There are a lot of uh, lawyers who uh, end up being successful authors all the way back to Washington Irving. And uh, apparently Charles Dickens actually worked as a law clerk for a while as well. So right. Harper Lee is a law school dropout. You've got Earl Stanley Gardner, et cetera, et cetera. The list is, is a very long one. A and I'm wondering if the fact that lawyers are trained to be observant and to notice details has some bearing on that. That could be. I don't know. Harper Lee was a law school dropout. I didn't know that. I, I, I was researching a list. Yeah, thank goodness for the internet. It says uh, lawyers who become doctors, and I thought, well, this this is interesting. Yes. Well, if you think about it, how much of that takes place in a courtroom? That's true. Although I I suspect people could criticize the procedure, but uh, <laughs> that's probably true in every legal drama ever written, much less filmed. In my experience, lawyers tend to be very verbal people, uh, much more so than many other professions. Lawyers, I think, tend to be word people. They read a lot and consequently are more likely to become successful writers, which of course does not in any way meaning, mean that their legal writing is going to be a pleasure to read, but that has to do less with ability and more with training. Yeah. There's a line that I ran across, I'm not sure where you're writing, it said the people who can communicate on paper end up getting promoted. I found that intriguing. That's true. There's a lot of studies to back that. Uh, if you, you know, every year 
around the fall, there'll be an article in the paper or a piece on the news about what are companies hiring this year. And one of the things they're hiring is always writers, even places where you wouldn't expect it. I've been asked to come in and teach writing in oil and gas companies and banks, uh, to accountants and auditors, people you don't really think of as writers, but they do need to be able to write. And it's frustrating for many of these companies who hire the best and the brightest people who made the best grades in school so they think they're going to have good writing skills, and they don't. <laughs> and that's why they bring me in. And again, uh, that leads us pretty naturally in, into uh, your whole Red Sneaker Writing Center, which is fascinating stuff. How did that come about originally? Well, I, you know, I've been a, uh, appearing at conferences and, and uh, writing conventions and whatnot, and you give a talk and try and give people useful input. But, you know, you learn to write by writing. And the most useful writing instruction is when I can sit down with someone and actually read their work, maybe even mark it up, and give them some one-on-one -on -one instruction. And that was really why I started having these small group seminars, never more than you know six or seven people at a time. Uh, so there's enough people that you can have a good conversation and discussion about one another's work, but not so large that it becomes impossible to give people individual attention. And I found that to be much more useful, uh, which is why I do it every year. And to be honest, I, we don't charge that much. It's not really a big bucks thing for me, but I think we've launched a lot of careers. I've, had, I've got more than two dozen former students now who have become published writers, some of them very successfully. Do you feel kind of a, a warm, I want to say paternal glow or something when that happens? Absolutely. Well, it's even more than that, because I remember what it's like growing up as a kid, you know, in a relatively small town in Oklahoma and wanting nothing more than to be a writer. That's all I ever wanted. I wanted to write. I wanted to publish. But how do you do that? You know, I didn't know. Nobody around me knew. Nobody was particularly encouraged me to perceive what uh, some saw as an enormous pipe dream. So I understand that frustration. Uh, so, you know, if I can help people out and help people get launched, get into the great marketplace of ideas and achieve their dreams, that's, you know, I know that that's going to make them a happier and more fulfilled person. So that's a good feeling. Where did the uh, red sneakers come from? Is that symbolic of something important? The idea, uh, who knows where that came from? Probably <laughs> I, I, I like my red sneakers, and I sort of have a memory of being with my children when they were smaller than they are now and being at a, you know, one of those movies that you take your kids to because they're going to like it and you're going to be bored to tears. And so my mind wanders off. <laughs> somewhere I came up with this idea of an approach to writing that kind of pairs away all the obfuscation and, you know, trying to sound literary, making things more complicated than they need to be. Uh, I've heard people, smart people, writers I admire even, give talks that I thought are not going to help anybody in the slightest because the point of this talk is not really to help anybody find their voice or to write better but you know it ends up kind of making it seem all mysterious and and, and that seems very artistic and perhaps leaves you thinking that the writer is wow just a deep person but it's not going to help you write any 
I, I try and kind of pare it down to useful information that will really, you know, make people more effective writers. Well, you, you you do a good job on the book titles on the Red Sneaker uh, books that you publish, and I think the one I want to have to get is called Powerful Premise, Writing the Irresistible. That's an irresistible title to me. Oh, great. Glad to hear that. That should have been the first one, but yes. I didn't think of it at the time, <laughs> so I'm getting there uh, late in the game, but uh, if you haven't started your book yet, the one you're trying to write, that should probably where you be where you start. Right. And then, and then you have a, a nice series going in the fact that you have alliteration on two words in a colon and then a, a subtitle, so like perfecting plot or creating character or story structure. For some reason, we resonate to those things that, that have those ties that put them together in a set. It's true, and that, that title gimmick was completely unintended. I mean, the first one was called Story Structure. That makes sense. That's what it's about, Story Structure. And then, you know, that was kind of catchy, so I went with creating character, and now I'm sort of trapped in this thing. <laughs> I feel like John D. McDonald writing his uh, 20th uh, Travis McGee and trying to come up with another color he hasn't used in the exactly title already. Right. And uh, Sue Grafton's about to run out of letters in the That's alphabet, right. too, isn't she? Right. I think she just put out X here this year, so uh, yeah. I mean, she has to go with the old um, On Beyond Zebra from Dr. Seuss, and... Anyway, it's a, it's, a, it's a book about letters beyond the Z in the alphabet. So we'll have to talk to her about that. I had um, a conversation with her once many, many years ago, and she told me that when she ran out of letters, she would start up with numbers. <laughs> I have a hunch she won't, though. I have a hunch Z will be it. We'll wait and see if I'm right. right. The, the thing about the numbers is you start with one, and they're going, oh, my gosh. <laughs> there's, there's no end there. Google plus one, as, as they say. True. Plus, Janet Ivanovich has used that gimmick already. So Yeah. And, in fact, it's probably hard to come up with a, a series of title gimmick that hasn't been used by somebody as creative and prolific as our authors are. True. Very yeah. true. So much, uh, I, boy, how many places I want to, I want to back up and talk a little, a little bit about some of the other things besides writing. So what is Alex Trebek really like? <laughs> well, I'm not really equipped to know because, you know, the contestants don't get to meet him beforehand. Mm -hmm. I think that's uh, not, I think there are actually fe federal regulations, you know, the result of the 50s quiz show scandals right. that right. prevent the host from meeting people beforehand but based on what i saw at the shows that i either was in or watched taped and inter interaction with the audience between he seemed like actually a very smart and very likable person very relaxed tell me about your your experience because it we all want to have that uh uh, feeling that we were there ourselves. The, the, well, go so, take the test. It could be you. Uh, well, I actually did take the test one time when I was in high school, but that was for, you know, when Art Jennings was doing it, not, not that. Oh, anyway. Um, time to do it again. You can do it online now. Ah, did not know that. that would... I used to watch Jeopardy as a one-digit kid in the art funding days and always enjoyed it. Yeah. At some point it occurred to me, you know, you're not getting younger. And this is, <laughs> it's nice to know the answers, but even more important on Jeopardy to be the first guy who rings in, reaction time is important. So I thought maybe if I'm going to do this, it was time. They used to have that seniors tournament, you know, for people yeah. of 50. 
for exactly that reason, to level the response time playing field. But they don't do that anymore. And I wasn't getting younger, so I thought, I'm just going to do this. And, uh, of course, now they have an online test, which more than 100,000 people take. Uh, and I must have done okay. I, you know, I took it a couple times before I got a call. And uh, sure enough, I got an email to go audition, went to New Orleans to audition, which I thought completely was a bomb. <laughs> <laughs> and then about a year later, I got a call saying, you want to come out and be on the show? So, of course, I did it. Uh, and you were a weekly you were a winner, too, as I recall. Yeah, and isn't that the most extraordinary thing? Because I wasn't as quick as this, you know, video game playing kid who was yeah. on the show, the reigning champion on my first show. And I couldn't beat him ringing in. I just had to wait for the questions to get harder, basically. Uh, I remember when it went to double jeopardy, I was so far behind. I said kind of a silent prayer and said, just let me be in, in the plus column at the end of the game. <laughs> I want to play final jeopardy. That's all I'm asking. Yes, right. Yeah, and and there's a and, you know, and the strategy on that, and you know how do you bet on that last one? And did you have a favorite question you really really liked from when you were there? Well, my final Jeopardy question, that first one, uh, the the one that put me over, had to do with uh, Les Misérables, which uh -huh. I've read the book, but I've seen the musical many times and loved, and. So as soon as I saw that question, I thought, well, this really was just meant to be, wasn't it? They couldn't have picked a nicer question for me. That sounds like so much fun. But the other thing I wanted to talk about that, that kind of blew me away is, is constructing crossword puzzles for the New York Times. How do you get a gig like that? You know, I've always loved puzzles. And the New York Times is often considered the gold standard I don't know if that's fair, particularly today, when there's so much activity, uh, just as in books, there's so much puzzling going on independently and right. being distributed by email. But I just thought, I wonder if I could do this, and gave it a try, and then uh, sent a letter to Will Shorts, who of course is the puzzle editor and has been for a long time, and he liked one and took it, and then I did some more. Wow. It's amazing how many people will, you know, you've written, I don't know, at that point I'm going to say 15 or 20 books and they're kind of, yeah, but tell them you made up crosswords for the New York Times and they're like, wow, you must be a smart person. Or something. <laughs> well, it does. It, and some of us have played around a little bit with it. And some of us remember Will when he was the publisher of the late lamented games magazine of oh, fond memory of the 1980s. So, I have to ask you, though, in your clues, did you use any of those really obscure things that only crossword puzzle people know, or were you trying to keep it honest for the rest of us? No, I tried to keep it honest, to use your phrase. I tried to keep it, and I think that's the trend. Uh, Will has come out uh, in favor of eliminating what's called crossword ease, those uh, weird words that are convenient when you're in a pinch, but kind of obscure. For the best constructors, that's when you just erase that corner and start over. It, you know, it, it's not it's not as much fun when you have to deal with foreign <laughs> words or the uh, name of some obscure river nobody's heard of. Uh, right, that's right. just a stopper. Yeah. When uh, when you. <laughs> 
I just have to think that there's that there's a tie between all of these things, these intellectual activities that you're involved in, between the puzzle doing and similar kind of Jeopardy things and your writing itself. Don't they all inform each other? I think they do. I think they're all... Uh... All the things you've mentioned anyway are related. Even crime fiction is so much about solving puzzles, uh, solving mysteries. You know, the, the mystery aspect of it is particularly what intrigued me, uh, the puzzle-solving aspect, and it caused me, having had no success with my so-called literary fiction, thinking maybe I should try something more popular. That's, that's why I went in the direction of crime, what I thought were mysteries. As the 90s progressed, the term legal thriller, as you know, kind of caught on. And at that point, I thought, well, I better add some thriller elements, shouldn't I, which has more to do with suspense and danger and running and jumping and shooting and all that kind of stuff. But in my books, there's always that core puzzle, something you can figure out if you're really paying attention, <laughs> you know, the challenge to the reader like Ellery Queen used to do. Oh, yeah. Oh. And that's part of the, the satisfaction is when you get to the end, if you have not figured it out, I speak as a reader of many of these, and, and it drops into place and you immediately re-examine the whole book and go, oh, and you see it in a whole different light, changes all the perspectives on that. That's a magic for a reader and it must be fun when you get that click in yourself and go oh yeah that well that's gonna work well yes exactly those are hard to come up with but that's exactly the reaction you want if you deliver the big surprise and the reader thinks now what that no that doesn't no that doesn't work at all that's not so successful but when they have the the reaction you described the oh of course now it all makes sense why didn't i see that you know that's what you're going for Absolutely. I notice uh, on your website you've got EPUB and other digital formats, and you encourage the fans to download the first chapters of your work. Is that like, here, kid, first one's free? <laughs> it's exactly right. You know, the Internet has been a great gift. Uh, for that matter, I think digital publishing has been primarily, at least in the long term, a gift for writers because it makes it so much easier to contact your readers without the necessity of middle people. What's the term? Middlemen seems too sexist. Middle people? Yes. But you know what I mean, to have direct contact with people no matter where they are. And that would be one example. The website is another example of it. And I would be remiss if I did not ask on behalf of the fans, when's the next Ben Kincaid novel coming out? <laughs> I've actually finished another Ben Kincaid novel, which would be the 19th. And I delivered it to my agent a couple weeks ago. I haven't heard back. Of course, it's been Christmas and whatnot, so sure. he's probably been doing other things. But assuming he thinks it's worth he'll have some notes in any case. But <laughs> assuming yeah. he thinks it's worthy to pass on, I think either late this year or possibly spring of the following year, you'll see the next Ben Kincaid book. Ah, okay. Well, I hear a vast collective sigh of relief across the country, even as you say that. Uh, <laughs> Well, I have to admit, there was a point after the 18th when I, I just thought, no, um, not, I can't, you know, if I have to go write another courtroom screen scene, I'm just going to shoot myself. I can't do this anymore. But then I took about five years off re and did other things, uh, did some young adult work, 
and uh, of course published my first book of, his, of of poetry and these red sneaker books that you've been nice enough to mention. Well, after five years away, it, it seemed fresh and new and fun again. So it was a pleasure to write. I wonder, I should ask you about your, your, your latest, your movie career uh, in The Donor. In the, I'm sorry, what? The, the Donor? Uh, the, I don't the, know what you mean yet. Oh, the, uh, the Internet Movie Database lists at least someone with your name as being a, in a movie that came out in this year as The Patient. Is, was that a different, is that a different <laughs> William Bernhardt? I'm pretty sure I'd know if I'd been in a movie. That's, <laughs> that's interesting. It is interesting. And uh, <laughs> I apologize to the other William Bernhardt then for not interviewing him. But I, I just assumed that was you know just a natural progression between all the other things that you're involved with. Um, fun. One of my books, as you may know, Nemesis is in some stage of production to be a television miniseries. Uh, they had a setback, of course, that stuff always happens, that the, 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 the network that originally contracted for it decided all of their specials are tanking, so they're not going to do any more. So we're looking for another network. But I thought that's where you were going, that Nemesis is going to be made into a miniseries. Yeah, and I saw that too. But uh, it, again, I saw the announcement. I think it was from 2013. I said, well, okay, where is that? And that, that sent me to the IMDb where it, it mentioned Jeopardy and this. So apparently they've confused two people of the same name. So. Uh, thus my confusion. but I also had a book published at one point. Uh, you know, I've written a book called Double Jeopardy, and there's subsequently been a film by that title, which I thought had a, uh, you know, oddly similar plot in many respects to a couple of my books. Uh -huh. uh, but I didn't have any formal relationship with that film. Mm -hmm. I, at least I never got a check in the mail. So. Yeah, that's, well... And, and, and any any negotiations on any of the books at this point? Uh, anything in the wings? There's other than Nemesis. There's nothing ongoing. The Ben uh, books, of course, have been optioned several times, but yeah. I think that's not uncommon. It will probably happen about ten minutes after I'm no longer here to enjoy it. <laughs> oh, is, isn't that the way? It, yeah, of the universe. It really it, it, is. But I, my kids might benefit, so that's good. Uh, there you go. Now, I, I have somewhere in here, I've, I run across, it says you have collected over 400 rejection letters. Oh, easily. Is that what it says? That's probably true. Yeah. Wow. Oh. Do but you have, some... have them in a little, like an album, and you flip through them from time to time going, that bozo, and move along? <laughs> no, I don't say that at all, because I understand why all that stuff was rejected. It wasn't any good. <laughs> <laughs> Bear in mind, I was sending things out literally when I was 11. I've got rejection letters that go back to that age wow. and ever since. So trust me, a lot of this was complete garbage. But for that matter, Primary Justice, my first book, was rejected many, many times by many people before it was published. And then it was published and sold about half a million copies. <laughs> Raw for that. Wait. So when did when was the moment that I I love asking this question? When was the moment when you've been trying and trying and you says now I am an author? Huh, probably when I got that first book and held it in my hands and looked into the mirror and thought, hmm, there's an author. Sure enough, I got an actual book. <laughs> you should think that as soon as you finished a good book, you know something. 
that you put your heart and soul in and you believe in. But sometimes, probably this is due to insecurity, you need that tangible <laughs> evidence, something you can hold in your hand and give a copy to your mom and say, see, see? <laughs> <laughs> All that, it wasn't wasted, honest to gosh. Um, how, how big a shelf do you have of your books? I mean, does it just cover the room or... It really, you know, I, I've published 40 books uh, uh, as of last year with the Game Master, and I have a book coming out in the spring that'll be my 41st, but it's it, one copy of each still doesn't really fill a shelf in our Now, I could pad that by bringing in foreign editions and, you know, here's the paperback or that kind of stuff, but I don't. Uh, one book per shelf. You are honest, intellectually honest, and I think you That's right. appreciate that. I used to have them in the house at all because, you know, I've read them. Why would I have them on my bookshelf? And repeatedly people would come in and say, where are your books? And it, I felt like it was almost becoming sort of a reverse pretentious thing that I didn't have my own books out in the living room. So I've changed that. So do you have, who, who do you collect or do you have other authors there too? Oh, we, we, this house is lined with books. We've got books past, present, uh, all over the place. And, and for that matter, I, I, I've been remiss. My wife, Laura, has published a book <sighs> called Cassandra, and so she now shares shelf space, too. Does she say, yeah, move over, I need the keyboard tonight? Is that? <laughs> no, she's got her own. Uh, and I have talked to several people whose spouses are authors as well. Some people say, oh, that might be you know, conflict or jealousy. They all say, no, it's like having the best first reader in the world right in your home. Yeah, I agree with that last part. She's a terrific editor. And everything I do now goes through her word processor. And I, I'm not sure I should even admit this. Don't don't play this back when she's listening. But you know she'll use that track changes thing in Word and line edit it, make changes of punctuation or or word changes or whatnot. Uh, most of the time anymore, I don't even read it. I just accept changes <laughs> and, <laughs> and and then read the draft. And if anything catches my eye, then I'm fine. But I never do. I trust her. She's a good editor. All right. Well, there's, I think we'll be blackmailing you on this one. This will, this will, this will be good. Uh, I, I missed a connection. I should have said you, you talked about the, the book coming out next year. Can you tell us about that? Well, it's called Challengers of the Dust. It's, it's a historical novel. It's set in Oklahoma in 1935 during the Dust Bowl, hence the title. It's kind of a blend of, uh, you know, kind of a tribute to old pulp writers of that era. Robert E. Howard, Edgar Rice Burroughs, that sort of thing. Yeah. And, of course, a lot of history involving the Dust Bowl, hence the kind of pulpy-sounding title, Challengers of the Dust. Yeah. I say that that does sound like a, a wonderful pulp title. So it, 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 have you written it in the pulp style? No, it's, it's much more straightforward than that, but I, I had some fun with the title. It's basically two guys who are unlikely pair of buddies who, uh, for reasons that are too hard to explain, end up pairing on a quest, and they start to journey east. I thought the story of Dust Bowl Okies traveling west had pretty well been covered by Steinbeck, so I sent mine the other direction. 
on their mission. And the funny thing is, it's set in 1935, the same year as Nemesis, but Nemesis, of course, is in Cleveland with Elliot Ness. Mm -hmm. This is the same time period, but a completely different world. Do you find yourself, when you've done a bunch of research for a particular time period, looking, thinking, well, what else could I write in that, since I have all this good background? I didn't start that way originally. Nemesis came, as you may know, it's based on an actual historical incident involving Elliot Ness. And in this case, I had the idea to write a Dust Bowl story here, you know, where I live, basically, but an earlier era. And it just ended up being the exact same time. Wow. So I, I shouldn't take too much more of your time because we're really having fun talking with you today. But I, I wanted to ask the best piece of advice you ever got about writing. Hmm. Well, I remember in the third grade. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I wrote some horrible short story or something, one page thing. And my teacher wrote in the corner, Billy, you are a good writer. Keep writing. So oh, I wow. did. That's probably why I'm saying, I mean, you know, encouragement at that age, I just lapped that up. It's probably why I'm still writing now. Did you ever go back and connect with that teacher again later? I can't say that I have. Uh, I'm not well, even sure because she wasn't married at the time. I wonder what her last name is now. I don't know. <laughs> oh, I know what I need, to, I need to ask you about, and that's about Conclave. Tell us about Conclave. Well, Conclave is a literary magazine uh, which has existed for several years under different management, but uh, they were in a financial stitch, I think, and it went up for sale. I had been published in it, uh, some of my poetry had, so I was aware of it, and it went up for sale. And so uh, we purchased it. My daughter, uh, Katie, is a professional writing student. She's in college and very interested in uh, you know, working for magazines and editing, but had told me that it's so hard to get experience. And I thought, well, I'll just buy this and put you in charge of it. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then you'll have some experience. Uh, but we're all in it. It's a family product. The first issue under our management is about to come out in about a month in late February. But it's, it's uh, full of poetry and short stories and some nonfiction interviews and photography. And the theme for this issue is writing for change. And we got some terrific stuff. And I'll just say to anybody listening, if you'd like to submit to Conclave, it doesn't cost anything, no risk. So I wish you would go find my website and click on the links and submit your work to Conclave. Well, now I'm intrigued. How would I get an issue when it comes out? Is this, uh, again, end of February? What do I do? Well, there's probably two ways. The easiest would be, while you're at my website, just subscribe. Ah, <laughs> okay. Conclave, and there's some kind of in engine there uh, where you can subscribe. And secondarily, once it's published, I'm sure it'll be available at Amazon because everything is. So <laughs> <laughs> that would be the other way. All right. And I also wanted to have you talk about some of the, uh, by the way, that's, uh, as I understand, it's www.williambernhardt.com is the website for people who can't remember. Uh, I need all the help I can get when websites are mentioned. And that is some of the workshops are coming up. Let's, let's talk about some of those. 
Yes, uh, usually during the summer, I do the writing workshops and uh, got some new locations this summer, which I'm kind of excited about. And I think every one of them is a result of a former student who's helping us get something started where they live instead of having to travel halfway across the country or whatnot. But uh, we're going to do a workshop in California in Huntington Beach area, Huntington Beach. So it's near Anaheim, not too far from LA. Got one in Nashua, New Hampshire, but that's very close to Boston, just a little bit less than an hour outside of Boston and other locations as well. Uh, that too is on my website. Click on writing retreats or that'll be in the red sneaker section of it and uh, very affordable hands-on writing instruction. I would love to see some new people turn out. I, I, so these, some of these workshops are, I, I think one of them is marked as four-day intensive. That's, that's immersion writing there. Right, exactly. Uh, and some of them, not all of them, but some of them, for instance, in Eureka Springs at the end of May, it's taking place at a beautiful writer's retreat. It's the Dairy Hollow Writer's Retreat, where I've stayed before. It's the most gorgeous place on earth. It's ridiculously inexpensive, $65 a night, I think, which includes your meals. They've got a fabulous gourmet chef there who will feed you. So we're just going to take over the place for several days and we can all, you know, we'll have classes in the morning and the evening. I'll be reading your work. You know, we'll have spare time to do writing yourself, hence the writing retreat aspect, plus all this fabulous food. It's just, you know, the perfect setup for something like this. Well, it sounds like you are and always have been a multitasker of sorts. Yes, that's true. I've got a lot of things going on. But, you know, that, that's, I, I don't think that's that unusual for people who write because even when you're writing full time and you're putting out a book or two every year, there are only so many hours of the day you can write. Nobody can write 18 hours a day. Unless maybe you're just on a roll and you're about to finish or something like that. But normally, you're going to write for several hours a day, a day, and then it's time to do something else. All right. Well, it's probably time to let you get going to do some more writing because as a fanboy, we want more pay copy out there so we can read it. Oh, terrific. We need readers. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. All right. You've been listening to Modern Sign Books on Blog Talk Radio with book specialist Roger Nichols. Be sure to check us out at modernsignbooks.blogspot.com. <laughs>